Hello and welcome to another installment of Hunter Gathers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories. I'm your host, Curtis Robinson, and today we're going to be talking about uh, football. This podcast is being recorded on the wildcard weekend of the National Football Playoffs in 2020, just for those of you finding this in the future. And we're going to talk about one of Hunter's uh, more famous sports pieces, probably second only to the Kentucky Derby piece, which is Fear and Loathing at the Super Bowl. This was a piece published in February of 1974. It's readily available on the internet. One of the reasons uh, I use this, and one of the reasons I like it so much, is that I read this with Hunter many, many times at Owl Farm. I used to steer uh, the conversation to this because part of uh, my relationship with Hunter and his work was to steer the conversation, if you will. And he loved to hear his work uh, read as a preamble to doing something else. And the fear and loathing at the Super Bowl, uh, 1974, was Hunter at somewhat the, the peak of his power. Uh, it was like watching a golfer use use every club. There's so much of Hunter's material in here, the merging of football and politics, the discussion of Nixon, and a lot of people will, will have you believe that, that football, he used football as an analogy to politics, and I guess that that's good enough for panel discussions, but I think he always kind of considered politics its own kind of sport. Uh, I don't think he considered them that much of a different thing. He considered politics a blood sport. The other thing I really like about uh, the Super Bowl piece is his use of revelations, one of my favorite things that had happened more than once would be um, to read from the book of Revelations. You wouldn't say Hunter was a biblical scholar, but he was a scholar of writing, and he loved the Revelations. He would call it pure writing, and we would read from it. I love the thought that, you know, on some Saturday night in, in Aspen, midnight comes and the bars are starting to close down, and you think, let's go to, let's go down the road to Hunter's house and Something crazy will be happening there. I love the idea that maybe you, maybe you, you've had a few drinks and maybe chewed up, perhaps not a blot or maybe just something easier like mushrooms, and you're just ready for whatever there is, and you you get to Owl Farm and walk in on a full fledged uh, Bible reading of Revelations uh, for an hour. Because whatever you were expecting, you weren't expecting to walk in on a um, Bible reading. But Hunter knew his Bible, he knew his revelations, and uh, that is what leads, of course, the, the Super Bowl piece. There are other things in here I get asked about from time to time. One of them is there's a reference to Mr. Natural. Some people will actually ask, is that a reference to acid, which is uh, a bit of self-deception, <laughs> if you don't believe that. Mr. Natural was a well-known comic book character from the the wonderful illustrator R. Crumb, and he was a guru kind of, of character, uh, straight up LSD reference. Uh, at one point in the Super Bowl, he's talking about chewing on a slice of Mr. Natural, so I think you'd be there. There's also a reference that most people don't get uh, to Peter Sheridan. Peter Sheridan uh, was the 
I guess we could call him a hobo, street person, something like that, from uh, the Ed Muskie incident in Miami that caused Hunter uh, no no end of trouble. This is a, a case, uh, as Hunter would explain it, that uh, he loaned his press credentials to, to this person so that he could get a free ride back to Washington from Miami, and the person proceeded to disrupt the candidate's speech. Since he had Hunter's documentation, people assumed it was Hunter uh, in those days. It was the last year before photographs went on your press credentials, and we can we can assume that this might have been one of the reasons why. So that's in here as well. Uh, also, since we're supposed to be an insider's podcast, this is the Super Bowl in Houston that years later in the 2000 race, uh, Gore versus George W. Bush, this became a thing. This became a real thing when the New York Observer noted that uh, George W. Bush had attended a Hunter S. Thompson Super Bowl party, which Hunter confirmed, uh, but... This was when the George W. Bush drug stuff was, was still an issue. And Hunter was interviewed for The New Yorker by uh, his biographer, Douglas Brinkley. And uh, uh, Doug wrote a piece that actually appeared, uh, I think, let's call it 2000 in The New Yorker, also available uh, on the Internet that sort of specifically ask about this. And, and I remember it well because uh, uh, it closes with a quote from, from Hunter who, who would not confirm that, the, uh, that George W. Bush did cocaine at his party by him saying, uh, I don't want to become the deep throat of, of drugs. Uh, I won't do it. And, I, and it's a really strange piece to read. Uh, Douglas does a great job with it. And um, it, it's worth looking up if you're if you're into uh, some of the more obscure things, but that that was this Super Bowl. That was the Houston Super Bowl, and so I'll start by reading the lead, of course. And this is, uh, and then I'm going to jump around. It, this is a long piece, readily available, and uh, I'll I'll do some of the things, particularly some of the things that uh, remind you that Doctor Hunter S. Thompson was uh, uh, the doctor was a doctor of divinity. And along with great writing, I think that um, you can go back and look at the uh, great magnet references in Vegas. So uh, a little spirituality from uh, the good doctor on a, on a Sunday. Uh, this is, of course, the Sunday after the New England Patriots went down to uh, a wild card defeat. And we will be on time because we're waiting for the kickoff for the Houdat Nation. Uh, the Saints are the early game today. And whosoever was not found written into the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelations 2015. This was the theme of the sermon I delivered off the 20th floor balcony of the Hyatt Regency in Houston on the morning of Super Bowl VIII. It was just before dawn, as I recall, when the urge to speak came on me. Earlier that day I had found, on the tile floor of the men's room on the hotel mezzanine, a religious comic book titled A Demon's Nightmare, 
and it was from the text of this sleazy track that I chose the words of my sermon. The Houston Hyatt Regency, like others designed by architect John Portman in Atlanta and San Francisco, is a stack of 1,000 rooms built around a vast lobby at least 30 stories high with a revolving spindle-top bar on the roof. The whole center of the building is a tower of acoustical space. You can walk out of any room and look over the indoor balcony, 20 floors down in my case, at the palm-shrouded wood and naugahyde maze of the bar lounge on the lobby floor. Closing time in Houston is 2 o'clock. There are after-hour bars, but the Hyatt Regency is not one of them. So, when I was seized by the urge to deliver my sermon at dawn, there were only about 20 ant-sized people moving around the lobby far below. Earlier, before the bar closed, this whole ground floor had been jammed with drunken sports riders, hard-eyed hookers, wandering geeks and hustlers of almost every persuasion, and a legion of big and small gamblers from all over the country who roamed through the drunken randy crowd as casually as possible with an eye to picking up a last-minute sucker bet from some poor bastard half-mad on booze and willing to put some money, preferably four or five big ones, on his boys. Then I'll skip parts to say, he writes, I had not planned a sermon for that morning. I had not even planned to be in Houston for that matter. But now, looking back on that outburst, I see a certain inevitability about it. Probably it was a crazed and futile effort to somehow explain the extremely twisted nature of my relationship with God, Nixon, and the National Football League. The three had long since become inseparable in my mind, a sort of unholy trinity that had caused me more trouble and personal anguish in the past few months than Ron Ziegler, Hubert Humphrey, and Peter Sheridan altogether had caused me in a year on the campaign trail. Or perhaps it had something to do with my admittedly deep-seated need to have public revenge on Al Davis, general manager of the Oakland Raiders, or maybe an overwhelming desire to confess that I had been wrong from the start to have ever agreed with Richard Nixon about anything, and especially pro football. In any case, it was apparently something I'd been cranking myself up to deliver for quite a while, and for reasons I still can't be sure of, the eruption finally occurred on the dawn of Super Sunday. I howled at the top of my lungs for almost 30 minutes, raving and screeching about all those who would soon be cast into the lake of fire for a variety of low crimes, demeanors, and general ugliness that amounted to a sweeping indictment of almost everybody in the hotel at that hour. Most of them were asleep when I began speaking, but as a doctor of divinity and an ordained minister in the Church of the New Truth, I knew in my heart that I was merely a vessel, a tool, as it were, of some higher and more powerful force. So, we get a bit of that. There's a reference to Mr. Natural uh, that is also telling. Uh, the quote is, What? Did my tongue slip there, my fingers? Or did I just get a fine professional hint from my old buddy, Mr. Natural? Indeed, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. John Mitchell said that shortly before he quit his job and left Washington at 90 miles an hour in a chauffeur-driven limousine. 
I never, I have never felt close to John Mitchell, but on that rotten morning in Houston, I came as close as I ever will, because he was, after all, a pro. And so, alas, was I, or at least I had a fistful of press badges that said I was. And it was this bedrock sense of professionalism, I think, that quickly solved my problem, which, until that moment when I recalled the foul specter of Mitchell, had seemed to require a frantic decision between either delivering my sermon or writing my lead in the, in the place of an impossibly short time. When the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Who said that? I suspect it was somebody from the Columbia Journalism Review, but I have no proof, and it makes no difference anyway. There was a bond among pros that needs no definition, or at least it didn't on that Sunday morning in Houston, for reasons that require no further discussion at this point in time, because it suddenly occurred to me that I had already written the lead for this year's Super Bowl game. I wrote it last year in Los Angeles, and a quick rip through my fat manila folder of clips labeled Football 73 turned it up as if by magic. I jerked out the file and retopped it on a fresh page slug, Super Bowl, Houston, 74. The only change necessary was the substitution of Minnesota Vikings for Washington Redskins. Except for that, the lead seemed just as adequate for the game that would begin in about six hours as it was for the one that I missed in Los Angeles in January of 73. The precision jackhammer attack of the Miami Dolphins stomped the balls off the Minnesota Vikings today by stomping and hammering with one precise jack thrust after another up the middle, mixed with pinpoint precision passes into the flat, and numerous hammer jack stops around both ends. The jangling of the telephone caused me to interrupt my work. As you can see, he immediately goes into a very interesting and thought-provoking part of, of the um, role of sports writers. Hunter always considered himself a sports writer. He would refer to himself as that. Of course, he started as a sports writer. Then he, um, then he became uh, better known for other things. One of the things I also like about the Super Bowl piece is it's kind of a precursor to the way he used the Hey Rube columns later on, sort of as a um, as a front door to to get into talking about politics. And the Hey Rube columns are still one of the the great arguments against the idea that that his later stuff didn't hold up to the earlier stuff. Some of the things he wrote in Hey Rube, and it was a regular column, so they weren't all. Uh, legendary, but a lot of the stuff he wrote in Hey Rube stands up to this. The uh, uh, some of the others, some of the other more biblical references in this are very, very good. Uh, the the other thing that I wanted to mention in my wholehearted recommendation for this piece, as as football season comes upon us, is that he talks about what's happening to football. He even talks about, and this will be of interest to San Francisco 49ers fans, he talks a lot about the move of the 49ers out to Candlestick Park. 
and he says that it, it led to just a, a, a bunch of lawyers and other rich people who really weren't part of the, the original fan base. You know, it's hard to imagine what he would think about their uh, move out to Santa Clara, you know, which is so close to the airport that pilots have complained that the lights can blind them on approach. Another thing I like about uh, the piece is we tend to forget that Hunter actually knew a lot of the players in those days. And he talks at some length about uh, labor relations. For instance, he talks about the, the gap between what NFL players made at that time and what the, um, an NBA player or, or someone like that would make. Here's another piece that another part of the piece that I think uh, is pretty indicative of that. He said, at the Super Bowl, I had the benefit of my usual game day aids, powerful binoculars, a tiny portable radio for the blizzard of audio details that nobody ever thinks to mention on TV, and a seat on the good <laughs> and a seat on the good left arm of a friend, Mr. Natural. But even with all these aids and a seat on the 50-yard line, I would rather have stayed in my hotel room and watched the goddamn thing on TV, or maybe in some howling drunk bar full of heavy bettors, the kind of people who like to bet on every play, pass or run, 3-1 to one against a first down, 20-1 to one on a turnover. When I finally left Houston, it was a cold Tuesday afternoon with big lakes of standing water on the way to the airport. I almost missed my plane to Denver because of a hassle with Jimmy the Greek about who was going to drive us to the airport and another hassle with the hotel garage man about who was going to pay for eight days of tending my bogus official Super Bowl car in the hotel garage. And I probably would not have made it off if I hadn't run into an NFL publicity man who gave me enough speed to jerk me awake and lash the little white Mercury Cougar out along the Dallas freeway to the airport in time to abandon it in the departure taxis only area and hire a man for dollars to rush my bags and sound equipment up to the Continental Airlines desk just in time to make the flight. He takes a gap after that and resets into the idea of what's going to happen. He's talking about a press conference immediately after the game. He says, quote, Meanwhile, on the other side of the lobby, Doug Swift, uh, Doug Swift was a player's representative, was going along with a conversation that had turned, along with Shula's, to money and next year's contracts. Swift listened for a while, then looked up at whoever was talking and said, quote, You can expect to see a lot of new faces on next year's Miami team. A lot of important contracts are coming up for renewal, and you can bet that the guys will be asking more, be asking for more than management is willing to pay. He goes on uh, just a bit later to say, against this background, it's a little easier to see why Larry Zonka, he was the MVP of that year, wants a raise from his current salary of $55,000 to $100,000 or so, a figure that he had probably scaled down pretty calmly if Joe Robbie offered him the average NBA salary of $92,500.
A quick little sidelight to all those figures has to do with the price TV advertisers pay to push their products during timeouts and penalty squabbles at the Super Bowl. The figure announced by the NFL and whatever TV network carried the goddamn thing was $200,000 per minute. I missed the telecast due to factors beyond my control, which is why I don't know which network sucked up all the gravy or whether it was Schlitz, Budweiser, Gillette, or even King Kong amyl nitrates that coughed up $200,000 for every 60 seconds of TV exposure on that grim afternoon. Another part of this that I like, uh, along with the, the part about abandoning your car in the uh, taxi lane, was his, he has certain comments on the Lombardi Trophy, which, of course, is, is is the trophy given to the NFL champion. He says, The trophy has all the style and grace of an ice flow in the North Atlantic. There is a silver plaque on one side of the base that says something about Vince Lombardi in the Super Bowl. But the most interesting thing about it is a word that is carved for no apparent, or at least no aesthetic reason, in the top of the black marble base. Discipline. That's all it says, and all it needs to say. And that's kind of where he ends the piece. But I'll, I'll put at least one more thing uh, for insiders. There's a part where he talks about Joe Robbie, who is the, um, well, I'll read part of it. He is, he is talking to uh, Robbie, who is the, the owner of the Miami Dolphins. And he talks about uh, being seen with him. At that time, Hunter was becoming extremely high profile. So he's talking about, uh, he collects a bet in front of Robbie. He said, I half expected Robbie to jerk his coat over his head and sprint for the tent exit, but he never even blinked. He kept right on talking about the McGovern campaign and then shook my hand again, invited me out to the Dolphins victory party that night at the Marriott Motor Hotel. Come on out and celebrate with us, he said. It should be a nice party. Why not, I said. Behind me I could hear George Kimball bellowing in the throes of a long, delayed acid frenzy. And as I turned to deal with Kimball, I remember that Joe Robbie was originally a politician, a candidate for Congress, among other things, on the left-wing farmer labor ticket in Minnesota. And there was something about him that suggested a sense of politics, or at least political sensitivity, that you rarely encounter among men who own and run professional football teams. Both Robbie and his coach, Don Shula, seemed far more relaxed and given to quick flashes of humor than the kind of militaristic, puritanical jocks and PR men you normally have to deal with on the business power levels of the NFL. This was just an obvious, especially with Shula, before the game as well as after it. And the reason uh, I think that's important is on several occasions uh, when we would get to this part, Hunter was uh, friends, I think he would have said, with um, Jim Ursay, who is the current owner of the Indianapolis Colts. And he always said that, that Ursay was one of, Ursay reminded him of, of what he thought about Joe Robbie and those guys at the time, and that he had somehow managed to be uh, very human yet was, was in that same world NFL owners. I, I say that because uh, I've never met Jim Ursay, but uh, if I were he, 
I would really like to know that Hunter Thompson felt that way about me. So shout out to him. And there you have it. I think that it's time to go enjoy a kickoff. A couple programming notes. I can confirm the rumors that Hunter Gathers is set to podcast at the Lono Tiki Bar in beautiful Hollywood, California on January 17th. Then we will also be recording in Aspen, Colorado on President's Day weekend, which is February 17th, 15th, 16th, 17th. And there you have it. The programming notes included, and hope everybody enjoys the football season. And remember, when it's over, it's not all that bad. Hang in there. Well, the Southern gentleman hit the highway and gave us stories we could share. Crooked schemes, shattered dreams of people everywhere. Road of whiskey screams and motel rooms where no one seemed to care. Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that.